0: Well, as most of you may know by now, I spent the last three plus months on a sabbatical. And since I've been back in the last week, I, I've gotten a lot of questions. So if you don't mind, I thought I'd spend a few moments just answering for everyone some of those uh, questions. The first one uh, uh, was this. How was it? It was great. Um, and the second one was, well, are you relaxed now? And I'm like, if you know me, no, I am never relaxed, but I'm less hurried. And I hope more grateful in the present moment. Well, what did you do? I uh, traveled a lot for the first part. We went and spent some time in Hawaii with the family. And then Pam and I went to see her mother in California. And we went uh, to Italy and to Greece. And then in August, spent a couple weeks taking my youngest son uh, up to uh, Duke, where he's starting a seminary. And then we took the long way home by way of uh, Niagara Falls and Cleveland, Ohio, where Pam was born, and uh, Shiloh. Battlefield in uh, Tennessee and then we got through traveling. I spent the last six weeks or so uh, at home and there I exercised some uh, read a lot showered and shaved when I felt like it and or was told to and uh, and enjoyed spending time uh, with Pam. Well, what was your favorite place? Well, That's hard to say. I like the Nepali coast of Kauai. If you've ever seen it, it's beautiful. Uh, Greek islands of Mykonos and Santorini were wonderful. Parthenon, still pretty amazing. And I got to put in a plug for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, what was the best part of the three months? I think spending... Spending time with uh, family, especially with Pam. More time, obviously, we'd ever spent together in, uh, in our married life. There's a, and then finally, how do I get me one of those three-month breaks? Well, sorry, that's a tricky part. And that is you'd have to go to seminary and then pastor a wonderful church for 20 years. Um, but there's something nobody asked me. What was the hardest part? What was the hardest part of uh, being away Um, uh, for three months. And certainly a part of it was uh, missing uh, the relationships uh, that I have here and that are so central to my life. But the other one, I got to admit, was just having to be quiet, having to be silent. Um, You know, for three months I didn't preach, I didn't teach, I didn't counsel, I didn't give uh, uh, formal advice, I didn't mentor, I didn't coach. And And I realized I was missing it. Um, uh, We were at dinner with a group that we traveled with. uh, And usually at dinner, I didn't do a lot of the talking. um, uh, But one night, about halfway through, we were in Greece, and the subject of Africa came up. And suddenly I caught myself launching into a 15-minute lecture about missing Africa. And then when I got back to the room, I said to Pam, well, that was random. But maybe it wasn't random. You know, I thought about a wedding I did several years ago. I did it with a retired rabbi. And so we were upstairs dressing to to come down for the wedding. And I asked him, you know, what do you miss most now that you're retired? And this is what he said to me. He said, I miss being the center of attention. I thought, God, is that who I am? Is that what's going on? Maybe. Maybe. But then i like to think that maybe it was just this. I mean, so many things happening in our world, whether it was the shootings in, in Charleston or Supreme Court rulings and responses uh, to that ruling and, and issues, of course, uh, dangers to the police and dangers to civilians and, and all that. And I felt like there was a biblical perspective that could be offered, but I couldn't offer it. It was pretty hard to be quiet for three months. But if it was hard for me to be quiet for three months, imagine how hard it must have been for the Apostle Paul to be quiet for three years. And that's his story this morning. What's interesting, the letters of Paul, you only get one side of the argument. You know, you don't know exactly what the other side said, but you see Paul's response. But apparently what they said is, you're not really an apostle. Everything you know, you just know because Peter or James or Barnabas taught you. And so Paul in his response says, look, let me tell you. Once I met Jesus, once I was uh, transformed as a Messiah follower, look, I went off to Arabia. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go to Jerusalem for three years. And it raises the question, which is, why do you go to Arabia? What's in Arabia? And what I would tell you is Arabia is like the desert. It's also a metaphor for the wilderness. It's sort of a place uh, where God Gets people alone and shapes and trains them. Another way to think about it is, you know how every July the Dallas Cowboys go to Oxnard, California, and in February the Rangers go to Arizona and the Astros go to go to uh, Florida, you know, for training camp. They get them away so they can work on the stuff that they will need when the season starts. And biblically, most of God's leaders spend some time alone with God in training. Before they get out there on the mission that God has assigned to them. Look at Moses. Moses spends time in a place called Midian, keeping sheep. While God is preparing him to go back to Pharaoh and lead those slaves into becoming sons and daughters of God in the promised land. And then there's another guy named David, who is a young boy, is anointed king, but is training for kingship as he's out there with the sheep. And then later, as an adult, his training for kingship is that he's hanging out in caves and hiding a lot of alone time with God. And there's Elijah. Elijah actually had done something really amazing for God and had struck down all these false prophets. But then he got afraid and ran for his life, and he's in the desert. And the angel of God says, you know, what are you doing here? And he said, look, they're trying to kill me. I'm the only one left. And you may remember God said, you're not the only one left. But then God said, but but I want you to eat. And then he said, then I'm going to send you on a mission. And so Elijah gets trained in the desert. And then Jesus, remember, 40 days? No miracles, as far as we know. No parables. No preaching or teaching until after he spent those 40 days alone in the desert. The desert, the Arabia, is God's training camp. For people on a mission for God. And so one of the things that Paul's doing by telling us the Galatians is he's saying two things. Number one is, look, I didn't get this from them. I got this straight from the source. What I know is because Jesus told me. Now, that doesn't mean God that Paul wasn't using his scripture. What Jesus told him helped put the scripture that Paul knew together. He finally figured out the whole story and where the whole thing was going. And he's saying that. And then the second thing by t- saying that he went off to the desert after he met God, he's saying I'm one of those prophets. I'm just like Elijah. I am like Moses. I'm like David. I've been set apart for this leadership. So he's kind of killing two birds with one stone. Well, I think to me, it raises a question. Well, all right. So I understand why you go off to the desert, what that means. But what happens there? You know, how does God train people? What's God doing with them? Well, maybe part of what God is doing with people in, in their alone time is maybe giving them a new or different skill set or maybe sharpening their skill set. Isn't it interesting how much how many people in the Bible, the desert time consists in being a shepherd? Apparently, there's something about uh, learning how to take care of people that want to go a different direction uh, that prepares people uh, to, to lead. Apparently, uh, helping to learn to be responsible and finding ways to feed and protect all that's good training. You know, I remember years ago, you may remember, Stephen Covey talked about seven habits of highly effective people. And one of them he called sharpening the saw. You know, if you keep swinging a tree with a dull axe, you're going to swing harder and harder with less result. But if you take some time to sharpen it, then you're effective again. And so maybe it's some skills training that's sharpening their axe. It could be. It could be just the, the, the discipline of silence. You know, that's some training that's helpful. I mean, would you agree? Do you know anybody on Twitter or Facebook or at a press conference that might benefit from the discipline of silence from time to time? I mean, it's a good discipline. I'm thinking that's happening there. But you know what I really think is happening there? And I didn't find it in the Bible verse for today. I found it in another one. When the people of Israel wandered in the desert and God took care of them and they came to trust in God for 40 years, when God is commenting on it in the book of Hosea, God said, Do you remember our honeymoon? It says to the people how we were alone together in the desert. Now, granted, Matt, it's not Hawaii, uh, but it was that alone time. You know what I think happens in the desert, what happens in Arabia, is people in that time learn how much they are valued and loved by God. I really think that's why God wants you alone. It's just to pour into you and say, I love you. Before you do anything, before you accomplish anything, preach any great message, go volunteer, touch some child's life, uh, teach them to read. Before you do give money to the poor, before you do anything like that, know that you're loved. I really think that's what's going on in Arabia or in this shepherd's field or in our own lives in times of silence and alone time. What God, first of all wants to do is convince us that we are loved apart from any good thing that we do. You know, that was the challenge for me, I think, on my sabbatical, is for three months, I wasn't going to do anything official, anything that looked worthwhile. Well, if I couldn't preach or teach or visit the hospital or help somebody, what's my worth? What's my value? If I'm just hanging around the house all day with my wife and three sons still respect me, will they think I'm a contributing adult? How will I know I'm loved unconditionally unless the work, or what Henry Allen calls the scaffolding, is torn away from my life, and it's just me and God, and God saying, forget all that good stuff you do, first know that I love you. You see, the danger I see among people who serve God both professionally and and as lay volunteers is simply this. Too often we try to serve God and other people in order that we will feel loved. Rather than starting with the fact that we are loved and then taking that love and spreading it to others. If you serve only to fill a need in yourself, you'll burn out. But if you serve out of the fact that you are loved and valued independent of anything you have done or haven't done, I think that changes things. And there's an energy, like Jesus said, a wellspring inside you that that you can continue to draw on. I think that's one of the beautiful symbols of baptism. And we can debate whether you baptize a small child or wait until they're a teenager or an adult. And there are interesting theological arguments that, that, that go both ways. But one of the beautiful things about seeing two children baptized this morning is before they've said a prayer, put money in the offering plate, helped a little old lady or man across the street. Before they've done anything, God's first word to them was not do this. God's first word to them was you are. You are loved. You are valued. And it's only when we internalize that that we then can really go forth and do things that God has called us to do. But it starts with knowing that we're loved as we are. And then it moves to sharing that love with others. And I think that's something we can all do. But it starts by making time, whether it's a few minutes a day or a day a week that we call the Sabbath or whatever, where we can spend that time being loved by God. One of my favorite places to see uh, was a very interesting place. It was a place called Meteora. Have any, any of you ever heard of Meteora? There are other places like it um, on the planet. It's like a mountain cliff. And in the old days, the monks tried to separate themselves from society so they could be totally devoted to the worship of God and not be polluted by the world. So they would get in these isolated places uh, up on these cliffs. And building materials would have to be delivered to them like a pulley system. And if they couldn't grow enough of their own food, food had to be taken to the monks through this, put in a basket through a pulley system. And it was only in the last century that roads really have been opened, decent roads to these places. And it's amazing the view that they have uh, from these cliffs. It's amazing the work that went into building this. You know, when you can't reach it with building materials normally. And the intricacy of the chapels was impressive. But these places to be alone with God, as beautiful as they are, do not compare with 825 East Bassey Road. Where people come together for the very specific purpose of supporting and loving one another so they might therefore go back out into the world and spread the love. Because taking in love is beautiful. Sharing love, even more so. May God bless us all as we continue on that mission together.